Hey, it's Laura Weber Davis here, executive producer of Stateside. We're a part of Michigan Radio, and that means that we rely on listener support to make podcasts like this, and also to expand the kind of podcasts that you can listen to, whether it's Doe Dynasty or Rite of Passage. This is the kind of work we want to bring you into the future. And so we're asking you on this Giving Tuesday, can you make a donation at michiganradio.org donate? We hope to see you there. Thanks. All right, on to the show. Congressman Dan Kildee has been representing the Flint area of mid-Michigan in Congress for a decade. He recently announced that he will not run for re-election next year. Kildee's retirement comes on the heels of a medical scare. He underwent surgery to remove a cancerous tumor from his tonsil earlier this year. Dan took over his congressional seat from his uncle, Dale Kildee, who served the district for several decades. It'll be the first time in generations that the seat isn't held by a Kildee. Today, Dan Kildee on his tenure, his retirement, and what comes next. This is Stateside. I'm Laura Weber Davis, in for April Bear. I have to tell you, I... I don't know why I was surprised. I guess everybody gets to choose when they retire. But I was a bit surprised to see that you were not going to run for Congress again. Were you surprised that you landed on this decision yourself? Or or did you know that this was probably something that was going to come sooner rather than later? Well, I go through the process every couple of years. You know, when I when I first ran, you know, I, my wife and I had this conversation back in 2011 before I launched my campaign that we'd give it a 10-year commitment and then we'd take it two years at a time. And so each of the last two cycles, I've gone through a process of evaluating how I want to spend my time. And I will say that this past year has given me particular time to reflect on that. You know, as you recall, I was diagnosed with cancer early in the year, had pretty serious surgery. And during that process of recovery, without a voice, I was able to think a lot. And You know, I I was still planning to run again because you have to in this business. You have to constantly be in the business of running. It's just the way it is with two-year terms, especially in competitive districts. But I could never get myself to 100%. And then I just had a conversation with my wife back home. And it was just obvious to me that there's no good time to leave ever. But that means there's never a wrong time to leave. And so I decided it was time. And I'll move on to other ways of having my voice heard and trying to do good work for for the people here in Michigan. Are you saying it's kind of like art where it's never really complete? It's just you have to abandon it at some point? It really never is. That's a very good way to put it. It's never done. And there's a new crisis that evolves every three or four months or every couple of years. And what I've learned over time is if you wait for the universe to tell you that it's time to leave Congress, you're not going to leave Congress. Mm. You'll leave feet first. And you've probably watched colleagues go down that path where they don't make necessarily the decision that is the best for them and the the right time to retire. That really should probably be the right time. Yeah, I have seen that. Yeah. And I've seen people stay where their own ability to contribute is somewhat diminished. But also, and this is not just Congress, this is just life in general. 
uh, when we get toward the end of our lives, I've never heard somebody say something like, you know, I wish I would have spent more time in the office or I wish I'd have spent a couple of more terms in office. Because in the case of this job, that means time physically away from the people that you care about the most. And it was, to me, the trade-off was becoming increasingly difficult to the point where the balance tilted in favor of coming home. Now, before you had your run with cancer and treatment, you know, you'd already sort of exposed some some wounds publicly about your struggles with mental health throughout the months after the insurgency on the Capitol on January 6th of, of 2021 and how there were some difficulties recovering from that. Was that at all a consideration or was it mental health more closely associated with your with your direct physical health? It was it was, you know, more of the of direct physical health, but it's hard for me to separate the experiences of January 6th and my my reaction to that, the post-traumatic stress that I experienced, the treatment that I received, I don't think that specifically played into my decision because I was grateful to be able to get the help I got and get through that period. However, January 6th doesn't stand alone as an event unseparated from the current political environment that we are in, the coarsening of political speech, the anger the, the obsessive belief in conspiracy theories with no foundation, all of that is a piece, is of a piece of January 6th. That backdrop does contribute to the, to the calculus in the sense that I had to decide as I continue to make the personal choice to spend you know, time away from friends, family, and my beautiful home state of Michigan, and to go to what? Mm-hmm. To to a place that I have seen go from being a respected institution by many to one that has, you know, been, I guess, shown the divisions in this country, but not so much divisions, but the coarsening, the anger, the venom that has invaded political speech. And it is hard for me to separate that from the decision to come home because, uh, that that wears on a person no matter who you are. No matter what anybody says, that gets to you. You know, it's not uncommon, especially when a party is in the minority, for folks to take that time. It's not fun. it's not apparently fun from what I hear to be in the minority necessarily. It's you don't necessarily get to the work that you really want to go to Congress to do. You know, is that part of the calculus for you right now that Democrats are in the minority, sure, it's a it's a slim majority that the Republicans are holding, but st- still one nonetheless. Yeah, not as much as you might think, because I'm confident that Democrats will be in the majority in the next Congress. And, you know, that was one of the factors weighing in favor of staying. But I also have come to understand something very important as well, which we all should know. Everyone should know that none of us is irreplaceable. You know, I I firmly believe that there's a lot of talent out there. And it was just time for me to step back and do something else. We'll be in the majority. But there is one point that I want to make relative to the point you were making. It is true that it's harder to be in the minority. But when I first came to Congress, we were in the minority. Mm. But it was a different Republican Party that was in the majority. It was the Republican Party of John Boehner and Paul Ryan and George W. Bush. These are people I could work with. 
In fact, I did work with them. You know, we got the, the, the help for Flint, the Flint aid package through the House when the Republicans were in the majority. And here I am, a Democratic member from a Democratic-leaning uh, uh, community, and I was able to work with Republicans on the other side to get really important help from my hometown. The environment in Washington right now does not allow that conversation to take place. The Republicans are no longer Republicans. They're something else. And I just hope that the real Republicans, you know, for the sake of the country, take back their party. We need them. Did the the dust-ups over getting to the speakership over the past several months and the ter- kind of turnover that's happened, has that changed your perspective of how work is done in Congress? It certainly it certainly has changed how the last year has felt. I mean, we had a really productive Congress leading up to the beginning of this term. I mean, we did what many would say in the two years uh, of, of the majority in the House, the Senate, and control of the White House, we had a prolific legislative record the Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, any one of those is a career-making initiative for a president or for a Congress. But that has changed so markedly since, you know, since the Republican, the, the new, and I keep saying this, the new Republican or current Republican Party is not the Republican Party I know. Kevin McCarthy, a person whose word could not be taken as a serious uh, as, as serious, uh, you know, conversation. Uh, this current speaker who, you know, God bless him, I guess, but, you know, he's got a different perspective. The, the fact that there's a dozen or so of the most deranged members of Congress and the Republican side who are calling the tune for that majority is is a unique moment in the history of the Congress. So this is a this is new territory for us. We need to take a quick break. More in a minute. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. We still have Congresswoman Dingell planning to be in Congress, but it does occur to me that we're sort of losing like these legacy political names in Congress. And, you know, it started with Andy Levin leaving and the, no longer having 11 in office. And now that same thing is true when you leave, having taken up the mantle after your uncle. And I wonder if there's a connection to be made, or maybe I'm reading too much into it, about how business is done in Congress and sort of the long-term commitment to the position in political families. Yeah, I mean, I think the family connection is one aspect of it that that we, we've lost. But I think it's less about fam- family relationships as it is 
that, and I, I was brought, I came into this world, this business, I guess you'd call it, when I was very young. Uh, it was 47 years ago, this coming June, when I was elected to the Board of Education in Flint. I was 18 years old. Wow. <laughs> and I've, I've, often, I've often questioned whether, I, if I had waited until I was in my early 50s, when in fact I did run for Congress, if I had waited and never been involved in the process, would I have entered politics at that moment, right. given the tone, the tenor of politics? So this may not directly answer your question, but I think it's part of it. What we lose when we lose that that sort of common thread that spans generations is a respect for the process, respect for the institution, respect for one another. And and what I what I fear that we see are people who are sort of moved by a single issue or the heat of the moment or their own anger. And then that's how they govern when they're in a position to exercise authority. That's not such a good thing. So this, this kind of understanding of its history, which comes from being in a political family, but can come other ways as well. If that's lost, that's something that's hard to get back. What do you see yourself doing now? Are you going to go run for another office, another a school board somewhere and just pop up unexpectedly in a Flint township, um, you know, com commissioner's race? <laughs> I don't expect that. I don't expect <laughs> to be on the ballot again, but I, I will use my voice uh, in, in some fashion. You know, my my background is not just local government uh, and then Congress, but also the nonprofit sector. That's where I see you know, I see that as a significant way to do good work uh, and to sort of pursue the mission of of helping, you know, my my fellow citizens in a different way. So, I'll, you know, my inclination, I don't have anything lined up precisely yet, but my inclination is to continue to use my voice as an active citizen with maybe a slightly bigger platform because of my history, and but also find meaningful work that is really focused on creating a more just society using the tools outside of government. Now, I think if you if you rang Candace Miller, she'd tell you that being a water commissioner is a pretty great job. That's what she tells me. And every time <laughs> I see her, she looks happy. <laughs> okay, my last question. I can't not ask about your district. As you said, it's a competitive district and was drawn in a more competitive fashion with redistricting. Do you think that the state party should be concerned about strategy around holding and maintaining that seat going forward? Yeah, both the state and national Democratic parties are placing a priority on this district. They did in 2022, and they will again this year and would have even if I had stood for re-election. It's one of those districts that can go either way, but I know this district pretty well. It is a district that is less consumed by political ideology as it is to a commitment to solve problems, to just use common sense, to not get too swept up in the heat of the moment and just keep your head down and do work that's good for the people back home. That's not a particularly partisan way to operate. And that's the, I mean, I think that's kind of a Midwestern value anyway. I think that's what my district is looking for. That's why in that tough race that we had in 2022, we actually end up winning by more than 10 points, which is unheard of for a toss-up district. So I'm, I'm hopeful that whomever follows me sort of takes that approach, learns a little bit from the success that I've had in Congress, and applies themselves in a similar way. 
Dan Kildee, thank you so much for your years in Congress and for the conversation. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And that's the Stateside Podcast. I'm Laura Weber-Davis. You can find the full Stateside show at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kavansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Lauren Neong and Olivia Meradian. Music for the podcast is from Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Network. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.